0: What a great morning, huh? Praise God. You know, it's crazy because, uh, so last night before I was going to bed, my wife looked at me and she's like, because you know, today we were going to have a, a secret surprise for you guys, uh, but it didn't work out. <laughs> but it would have taken most of the morning, and, and, um, so last night, as that was our plan for today, my wife comes to me, Yuri says, hey, I feel like God wants to really take the teaching deeper, you know, more about scripture and emphasis on this, and I was like, yeah, yeah, but I wasn't sure, because, you know, we were praying, and we felt like the surprise was for this morning, you know, I woke up this morning, like, the butt crack of dawn, it was like five in the morning, I don't know, I'm still jet lagging, because, like, I'm somewhere in Oklahoma time, because I'm making my way from Europe to now, and, uh, wake up and i felt like the lord first thing he said to me he's like don't do what you were going to plan on doing i was like oh, okay and i wasn't sure about that so i text dan straight in the morning and then uh we meet we pray and we feel like that's right and it makes so much sense because it created space for what we we're doing this morning right which was awesome i mean it was so awesome It was like a fresh gust of wind that just blew in here man so beautiful yeah so beautiful and one thing else that we felt like the Lord was leading us to was to teach more out of the scripture. So today, if we have time, I'm going to tear apart some of these parables that Jesus spoke. Because, see, we live in a time where every claim has been made under the sun, like we've been sharing, you know. And even there's... Misunderstandings of what love is. We don't true. We, we're trying to understand what biblical love is. There's so many things that you know the media tells us. There's so many things that the studio, uh, the studio Hollywood tells us. There's so many things that that we hear or that we think. But we got to go back to the truth of God, and what it says about love. And it says in John chapter four verse twenty three. You know now, yet a time is coming. It has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so we've been experiencing a lot of the Spirit, but it is now time to peel away the truth. And what the truth is, is the person of Jesus Christ. And what the, so we got to go to the gospel, see what words he's speaking. Just like John said this morning, like, he doesn't, Jesus, when he speaks, when you start to really start to understand why he says what he's saying, you realize he doesn't waste a word. The these, the A's, the, everything is right in place. And it's loaded with truth. Loaded with truth. And um, before we even start that, I was just going to kind of preview. I just want to show you this cool video clip. You know, how I talked about how since Christ died till now, there's about 1.7 billion Christians on the planet. And in the next 20 years, that number is going to double because of technology boom, because of globalization, and because of, you know, the influx of education. And so this is the time that we're living in. I felt like this video just awesomely represents it, not this video. Yeah. Uh. So since Christ died till now, there's about 1.7 billion Christians on the planet. And because of globalization, because of technology boom, as you can see here, this number is about to double. And some say that's like a small estimate. Actually, it could be even sooner than that. Where you guys are living in a time where there's where the call to all is going on. This is a global initiative to unify the whole body of Christ before the world was too big to do something like that and now every day every moment the world is getting smaller and smaller by the second which is allowing some of these more connections that are starting to happen and then you know we sh- we spoke on Matthew 24 and all the things that are kind of pointing to this end age another thing was that i didn't mention last time was war and rumors of war right so since they said since the 1960s till now there's more reco- there's 100 new conflicts that have been recorded and rumors of war. Ever since the political system, you know, between um, red and blue, right? The Cold War between the U.S. and Russia and all their little alliances on each side. The moment that it busted down is the moment that our political system globally became more fragile than it has, has ever been before. And now each each nation is kind of like on their own, speaking and politically and trying to hold their ties with one another. And there's just this fragile state, and we're just kind of waiting for one person to press the button. <laughs> We live in a time when every claim has been made under the sun. And a time where you're just loaded up with information. And with knowledge and information and knowledge and information and knowledge. And it's great because I think as Christians we need to be well versed in these things. Yet, I think what will separate us is not information. It will be our experiences with God. It will be the testimonies that you've been sharing. It will be when people like Kirk go out on the streets of Kona... And just with the raw power of God, lay hands on someone and they're healed. It defies every kind of logic possible. And I believe in this time that we're in, there's going to be the most extravagant love that is ever released on the planet. And that it will come through his bride, through his body, through you guys. An extravagant love for Jesus, which will then, of course, result in extravagant love for your brothers and sisters, your neighbors, the most marginalized, the oppressed, the hungry, the thirsty, the single mom, the unemployed, those who are dying of HIV and AIDS, those who are hungering. There's about to be, and I feel like in this time, love is going to be the only thing that really stands. The love of Christ. An extravagant love for one another. An extravagant love for one another. And there's gonna, this is going to be the mark and it has been the mark since the very beginning. That we'll be like, man, there's something different about them. It says in John chapter 13, verse 35, By the way you love one another, people will know that you are my disciples. Because there'll be this oozing love that comes out of each and every one of you. And people will be like, that's not normal. And they'll see the way that you even love those you don't even like that much. And then they'll take it to the next level and they'll see that you have a love, even for your enemies. And they're be like, "This is crazy. This is crazy. And the greatest transformational agent, this love, this love of Christ, is going to consume the planet and take it over. <laughs> but we have to know the truth. In a time when every claim has been made under the sun, we have to know the truth. And the truth is the person of Jesus Christ. And we have to know him. We have to know what he says, what he's thinking, what is on his heart. We don't need more business plans and strategies. And those things are great too. We need the heart of God. We need to know what the person of truth, Jesus Christ, thinks about all these things. And I'm going to tell you this right now. That your greatest weapon of warfare on outreach is going to be this. It's going to be your unity. It's going to be your unity. It's going to be the way that each of you carry the responsibility of guarding the unity of your teams. Because we said this before, like when you go into the field, it's like Psalm 133. It says when brothers and sisters are in unity, this is when God commands his blessing. It's like oil that drips down from the head. Of Aaron And drips down the beard of Aaron and begins to go down and trickle down everything. It's this awesome love, right? Or it's like the dew on the side of Mount Hermon, which, which represents refreshing, which represents nourishment. And it all starts in the way that you are unified. And the oil that makes unity work is this love of Jesus. But we have to, go, we have to take a step back and we have to start to define what this love really looks like. Because we live in a time when, you know, love has all these different definitions, right? And sometimes we ourselves get them mixed up. The water gets a little murky. And we're like, okay, okay, so what does the real love of Christ mean? What does the real love of Christ look like? You know, and I love the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Philippian church in chapter 1. He says, my prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So, like, they would know through the knowledge of God and through the insight of God what love was defined as. So your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, what is pure and blameless. What is pure and blameless. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to try to squeeze in a lot. (laughs) I hope we can get it in this next hour. But it starts with the love. It's a simple message of love. I was at um, someone's condo. They're part of the leadership team, and we were talking about the subject of love. And we were talking about how, as, as leaders sometimes, you know, we love these certain messages, but when they start talking about love, we're like, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, I know that one. 1 Corinthians 13, all day. I'm here. I'm loving people. I'm doing what's right. And then you realize, like, oh, the moment you're not listening is the moment that you forgot that you don't have it and that you need to refresh yourself once again about what this love really means. So unity and love, the greatest weapons you'll ever have on outreach. And yeah, we're going to dive right in. You guys are on the China team, the New Zealand team, Afghanistan team, the Thailand team. Am I missing a team? Israel, I always forget Israel on purpose because it's Ryan's. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that one. (laughs) That's Ryan and I's friendship. All we do is bash each other. (laughs) He's like my brother in that way. But God has handcrafted these teams, right? Custom made them. We talked about DNA code. Three billion characters in a single person's DNA. It would take me 93 years to read Matt's DNA code. And yet God's formulated a team, hand-chosen each and every one of you to be a part of this specific team that you're a part of. Going to China, let's say. At this specific time of what's going on in China with the huge boom of believers, tens of thousands a day. Because he knows the way that you will be together as a group in that situation at that given time. He's orchestrated. It's like a beautiful tapestry that he's made. And each of you are extravagant color. That the world has never seen before. And it's beautiful. There's no other color like you that makes up this beautiful piece of artwork that God has created. You know that he's chosen you to be on this team. He's chosen you to be on this team. So we got to get that in our head. Because the word chosen is this word elected. is the word eklektos in the Greek. Right? The word eklektos is interesting. It talks about a general's relationship with the soldier. So if you think of God and his most common name in the Bible is the Lord of Hosts, Lord of Heaven's Armies, we can imagine him sometimes as a general. I'm not saying that's just the character of who he is, but this is a major facet of who God is. The Lord of Heaven's Armies. And it's his relationship that he has with his soldiers. And when he chooses the soldier, he doesn't necessarily choose the soldier because of the soldier's ability. He chooses the soldier out of his own wisdom of how this soldier will respond in the exact situation that he's in. So God has chosen you knowing because he's created you and you'll respond a certain way while you're on outreach with the dynamic of this team that you're a part of in the nation that you're going to. Are you guys tracking with me? So do you understand the gravity of, and the heaviness of like, wow, God, like you constructed this. Somehow before the foundations of the earth were created, you allowed me to be here in the month of September about to be launched into this nation that you know needs the Jesus in me and the way that you've created me. I mean, that alone should make you, like, that alone should blow your mind. You could literally think of that for an eternity. (laughs) Literally. Because this is who God is. And so all of you, like we know it says in Genesis chapter 1, we're made in the image of God. All of you possess a part of who God is. And you bring that to the table. No one else could bring to the table what Alicia brings. Because she's creating the image of God and she has something that's very unique. And all of you represent God in a very unique way. And so, if you bring this together, it creates this incredible dynamic that the world has never seen before. And you guys are also creating the image of God, so you're called to be like the character of God in a sense where who is God? He's the Trinity, right? He's completely unified in Himself, three in one. So unified, so in love with Himself, so. Moving so fluidly fluidly with himself that he's three completely in one. He's three completely in one. And you're called in creating the image of God to live in that same way. See, do you know what two and one like three and one, how unified that really means? There gives there's one similarity in scripture that I see, and it's when a man and a wife get married. The two shall become one, right? When when Yuri and I we got married at Livingstones Church eight months ago. We were sitting there, it was a beautiful wedding, came together last minute. God was so in it. I mean, like, our flowers got canceled last minute. And then um, this person was woken up in a dream by God that says, do their flowers. And she had, like, all these connections in the community, and we didn't know where to get flowers. It was just nuts. And so I could see God's commitment to marriage, not just through the flowers. But I really saw it when we were standing there, looking each other in the eyes, already starting to weep because the love of God was so on us. And when Jim Ored, who was just back there, I don't know where he went, he was marrying us, he started sharing the vows. And we started repeating after him. And as we were repeating after him, and we did the I do's, literally I felt something shift inside of my spirit. Because I was walking as one, and Yuri was walking as one. And then as we said that, something happened. It was like, shh, and the two became one. And it was the most profound moment I've ever had in my life. It was so profound. Because I started to understand more of the character of God in the sense that the two shall become one. And you guys are three in one, right? Or God is like three in one. And so you're called to have this kind of relationship with yourself as your team, as the Trinity. The essence of who God is is friendship, love, and relationship. And you are supposed to mirror that to the nations that you go to. Through the way that you care for one another. Through the way that you love one another. Through the way that you honor one another. I often thought to myself, what was, "What was the Trinity doing before the world even existed?" How many of you read the book *The Shack*? I mean, it's an awesome portrayal of the, of the Trinity and the way that they love one another. It's so awesome. They out honor one another. They prefer one another's preferences before each other. There's complete selflessness. There's complete giving of each, one oneself to one another, and it's beautiful. And see, so in that, as you become more loving, more unified, you are now mirroring God. And the power of God is released through the love. I mean, it's just awesome. <coughs> Flip my notes. See, the enemy is going to go after your unity. And I bet you that he's already started now with little baits of offense with little ways of making you guys get annoyed with each other at times. I mean, we're all human. We're all, we're all flawed in many ways. And, and the thing is, we have to be aware. God has given you an incredible responsibility to try to preserve the unity of your team. He's given you incredible responsibility. Like when we think of what he's entrusted us with, the fear of the Lord should come on us and say, man, I need to fight. For my team's unity. I need to fight for us to learn how to love one another. And it starts with my own actions. It starts with my own actions. Good catch. <laughs> but how many of you know that love takes work? I mean, it takes a lot of work. It takes real humility. You know, I love what it says in Philippians chapter 2. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. How tough is it to put someone else in front of you? How tough is it to put their needs in front of you? It takes a real humility. I'm I'm learning this humility as I've gotten married, because there's selfishness inside of me that I didn't even know I had. You know how you know that you're selfish? You put yourself beside another selfish person, because we're all human and we're all selfish, right? And so now you guys have preferences and you're arguing over it. See, when I was single, I could do what I wanted. For example, like, when I was, when I was going to, uh, when I, we were in Denmark, we had a prayer. Uh, Yuri and I were like, let's go to this grassy place and go pray. And we're like, okay. So that morning we wake up and I'm like, hey, let's ride bikes there. Because in Scandinavia, they love to ride their bikes when the weather's good. And she's like, no, I don't really want to ride my bike. Uh, and I was like, come on, please. And she's like, and then we're kind of wrestling with it a bit. But then I win, and so we ride our bikes there. And so we get there. I put a blanket down at this grassy knoll. But it was kind of slanted. And so we sit there, and and we're sitting there for a while trying to pray. And Yuri's like, can we please move? She's like, it's kind of uncomfortable. And I was like, no, let's just stay for a little bit. We could just press in. You know, we're in the middle of prayer. And she's like, please. And we kind of argue a little bit. And then she wins, right? And I had a crazy revelation. Because when we got back home, I realized that, you know, um, if I was single, I could have just chose to ride my bike, and no one would have cared. And I could have co- chose to place this blanket down on the grassy knoll, and I wouldn't have needed to move because I didn't have another preference. But now that someone else was in the picture, I now have to die to myself and put someone else before me. I now have to say, oh, I, I now have to think about maybe not riding bikes, or maybe not putting my blanket on that spot. It wasn't selfishness before when I was single, but now it is because there's someone else around me. Is this making sense? And so you're going to see that a lot on outreach because there's going to be a... And that's only two people. You know what I mean? So when your teams are like 7, 8, 10, 12, I mean, there's like 11, 12 people you're going to have to put, or even more, there's going to be, a, there's going to be even more people to prefer before yourself. Prefer before yourself. And... And you got to be really careful. This is the word that I received when I was praying for you guys one morning was the word offense. So there's this book called Bait of Offense by John Bevere. It's an awesome book if you get a chance to read it. Have any of you read it before? Maybe not. And so so it talks about the bait of offense. See, in Luke chapter 17, it says this. It says, beware, because, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, pretty much everyone's going to offend you, right? So beware of that. And then it goes on, and, and, and see, the bait of Satan is a fence because of this. So there's this word, this Greek word called scandalon, and it's a bait stick. It's like a, it's like a stick that stands up. And then on top of that bait stick is the piece of meat. And this is a trap, you know, that they create for birds and small animals to try to, to, try to get them. And so when the animal comes and bites, bites this bait stick, what happens is, is that they uh, get trapped in the trap. So he talks about how the bait of Satan is actually offense because it's not necessarily sin just yet. But the moment one of you bite on an offense that someone has against you is the moment you get stuck in this trap and you start moving around and and it gets tighter and it gets tighter and it gets tighter and tighter. And see, the thing you got to know about someone who's offended is this. It says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, that a brother who's offended is harder to win than a fortified city with walls. So what it's saying is that when a brother's been offended and he's bit into that offense, all of a sudden, he becomes like a city that's surrounded by walls. He's protected. He's keeping himself in. He's not wanting to move forward. He's hiding behind his walls. And it's hard to win him over because these things have already gone up. These things have already gone up. And so it's so important not to bite into this offense. Let's all go to Luke chapter 17. Raise your hand when you're there so I know you're there. Another huh? Chapter seventeen. I think I'll be okay. Thanks. So it says, Jesus said to disciples, thing that co- "Things that cause people to sin are bound to come." So he said it himself. Things that are that cause people to sin are bound to come. This is offense, right? He says, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, which is like pretty much seven in the Hebrew was this number of perfection. So if he sins against you pretty much like an infinity amount of times, forgive him. And seven times come back to him and say, yeah, I, uh, I repent, forgive him. And already at this moment, the apostles realize that this is going to be really impossible to do. And they say, Lord, please give me faith. Please, because if, if that happens, I, I know how easy it is to get offended. And I know how easy it is some, for someone who's going to wrong me and to sin against me. Please give us faith, because I don't think I can forgive them after a while. Because how many times do we, all, do we give up bringing that, that kind of forgiveness to one another? And then it goes on, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And then he goes on into this uh, parable, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would you not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are only unworthy servants. We've only, been, we've only done our duty. So if you look at the first verse, offense comes, right? Whew, it's hot. What happens is that offense comes. And then Jesus says, hey, you're, this might cause you to sin. And then, the, and then the disciples are like, there's no way we can continue to forgive if the guy, this guy sins against me. But Jesus knows the root of this, so he gets to it down at the bottom. And he starts talking about entitlement and how we feel entitled to our sin. We feel entitled at times to hold on to the things that people have done to us. See, and he gives, and he gives the example of him to us in many ways about how we need to forgive just as Christ forgave us. I think I'm confusing you guys. So I'm going to go to our next scripture. Uh, go to Luke chapter... Uh, 12, I mean Luke chapter 10, sorry, verse 25. Sorry, I think I'm trying to cram too much into this time, so we're going to really plow through this one. But um, yeah, let's go for it. How many of you, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan? Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. So we're going to go pretty much verse by verse, all right? It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Stop there. Okay, an expert in the law was someone who was well-versed in the scripture. He understood the 613 law, laws of the Torah in and out. In and out. So he comes to Jesus. But the thing is, you got to notice this, is that he stands up. What does standing up usually mean? What does standing up usually mean? It's a sign of respect, right? It's a sign of respect. So an expert in the law stands up. And he calls Jesus teacher, which is also another respectful name. So the expert of the law is acting respectful, right? Are we all trekking? But then there's this funny word. It says, but he came to test Jesus. He came to test him. And he said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word eternal life is the word olam haba. There's two, two words for life. The first one is bio, which is, we know, biography and all these things. And then the other one is olam haba, which means, how then do I live a life that is completely in harmony with God? How then do I live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? How must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But we got to remember that he has an agenda in mind, because he came to test Jesus. So probably in this testing, he's not going to come with the real question that he wants to ask. Does that make sense? He stood up, he calls him teacher, but inside of his heart, there's something that's deceptive. Something that wants to pin Jesus. Something that wants to put him in a corner. Something that makes him want to to get Jesus to answer a certain way. And so he asks him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, what is written in the law? I love that Jesus responds in questions. You know, It says he responds in questions over 300 times. So when people ask a question, he usually never answers it. He always responds in another way, which is awesome. (laughs) What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The expert in the law said, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Or with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is an answer we've heard Jesus give before that we talked about, right? So he gives the exact answer that Jesus has given to him. And then Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Aha. So Jesus flipped the script on him. And now this guy has to come with his agenda. Because if you look in the next verse, he says, but he wanted to justify himself. So now Jesus, through answering, he flip-flops the thing on him. and, And now this guy has to be like, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So who is my neighbor is actually the real question that he wanted to ask. He's forced now to play his hand. See, the thing about who is my neighbor is that it was a question about and and one of hot debate back in the day. It was a hot debate back in the day. It was about, because there was this worldview that the Jewish laws and the experts in the law were all about themselves. They thought, hey, we as Jews were the chosen people. We as Jews were the chosen people. We were predestined. We were born from above. We're better than the rest because God has picked us. And he's thinking, hey, if I tell Jesus... If I tell, And he was thinking, hey, if I, if I say this to Jesus and he says that someone outside of, outside of uh, being a Jew is our neighbor, then I'm going to pin him. And I'm going to get him. Does this make sense? And so Jesus responds in incredible brilliance. And he goes into this story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, I'll show it later. There's a So the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles long. And it was a really narrow and windy road through many hills. And it was known, it was infamously known for people who who would walk down that road and get beaten all the time. You know, because robbers could hide behind and be tucked away in the corner. And the moment when someone walked by, they could grab them, beat them, and steal their money. So as Jesus, he's thinking about this as he's telling this story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You have to understand these two details. The first thing is that there was two ways that people were recognized back in the day. It was by the way that they were dressed, because of their cultural dress, right? So you know that we're American when we wear tennis shoes, or you know that someone's Afghan or Muslim if they're wearing Muslim traditional clothes. So he was stripped of this thing that would identify him of who he is of his clothes, right? And, he was, and another way to identify the person was by their accent. Was like, you know if they're from down south, like some of you, or you know if they're from up north, or they're from Boston, or they're from another area of the region, right? But this man was stripped, and he was beaten half dead. So the two things that he would be able to be identified by were taken from him. So all you know about this man now is that he's a human being. You don't know what nation he's from. You don't know what nationality he's a part of. You don't know what cultural background he's a part of. And see, Jesus is already indirectly tackling this understanding of worldview. Because they thought they were chosen, that it was just them. But now there's a man who's completely unidentifiable. He's just human. So it said, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the other side, uh, so to a Levite, uh, where am I? Sorry. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. The funny thing about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is, is that it's really narrow. So if I was walking down this road, you know, sometimes when we read this, we think that he was like way on the other side, like he doesn't want anything to do with him. But actually, passing by the other side would be like me right here and him being right there. So the road was really narrow. And on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there were three people who commonly walked down this road. The first one was a priest. So you you hear the priest, right? He's the one who crossed on the other side. The second one who walks by is a Levite. And he's also the one who walks by. So the original readers of this text are thinking, oh, I know who the third person is who's going to help him. Because there's only three people who walk down that road constantly. It's going to be... The third person is this, a Jewish layperson who's coming back and forth from the temple. But Jesus throws this wicked, wicked curveball in this whole story. Because they're thinking, oh, okay, it's just going to be this Jewish layperson, someone in their own mix. Someone in their own mix. And Jesus goes on. So it said, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came there, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. See, you have to understand that when Jesus said Samaritan, this threw off the whole story. Because they thought it was going to be a Jewish layperson. But he says Samaritan. Samaritan was the person that they hated the most. They hated them. They would have church services in their synagogue that would just bash these people. Imagine going to a church service and they're like, after worship and after fellowship, we're going to have a time to bash the Afghanis and the Muslims and the Taliban. That, that's really what it was, right? Like, this is kind of their understanding. Like, this is how much they despise the Samaritans. They wouldn't even dare say the person's name. And now, it's the third person who's helping them is actually his mortal enemy? You understand this? And he's asking the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Is it possible that Jesus is now starting to shift towards saying that their neighbor might be the person that they hate the most? This is this making sense? The person that they hate the most? Because he said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he points them to them to the Samaritan. The person they can't stand. And this is changing their whole paradigm. Because Jesus said, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's now saying, love your enemy as yourself. So, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. It's funny that they use oil and wine because this is what the priests and the Levites would carry with them. And he's using the very thing that the expert of the law thought the other guys would use. But, you know, it's like his enemy is actually using the very things that he's using. It's just so profound. Then he put the man on his own donkey, which was a sign of respect, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after me, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for, extra expense, uh, for any extra expense you, have may, you may have. So he not only... Uses oil and wine, what they use. He throws him on his own donkey, which is a sign of respect. He puts him in an inn, pays for his room, and says, even on top of that, if it goes over, just in case it goes over, because it, if it goes over, the man who's wounded has to pay, uh, pay, pay taxes or whatever and will be in bondage to the innkeeper. He says, even on top of that, I will give you what extra it takes, just in case, to make sure that this guy is okay. And so Jesus then, after he's done telling the story, says this. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Was it the priest? Was it his own kind? Or was it the Levite? One of the religious leaders? Or was it his neighbor? Or was it the Samaritan? So he's saying, who is his neighbor? Is it possible that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that he's talking about your enemy? Why do you think Jesus would be saying that? Because he knows. If you know how to love your neighbor, if you know how to love your enemy, the one who's persecuting you, the one who's slapping you around, the one who's constantly slandering your name, the one who's tearing you down, if he knows you can love that person, he knows you can love everyone in between. And if he knows you can love everyone in between, he he knows that you can love the people on your outreach. And there'll be times when you're like, because when you get about six weeks in, like people's annoying things start coming out, and you're like, you don't have the drive to love them anymore. How many of you have felt that way before? I mean, we're all human. We all have our, I mean, I know my wife all the time, and she has to choose to love me. But Jesus is going after, if you know how to love, to take compassion on your, even your enemy, that it will cover everyone you know how to love along the way. It's like when Dan was in prison. He had a man, I don't know if he told you the story, have you told the prison story? He had a man who used to beat him all the time. Imagine that. Someone who used, to, who used to beat him all the time. And he said, hey, I want to become friends. And he took compassion on his very enemy. He took compassion on his very enemy. And when I look at Dan Bauman, I know that he knows how to love everyone in between. Because I've seen people offend him in the past, or he's been offended in the past. And I've seen, you know, people say certain things about him, but he continues to love them. Regardless, he chooses to love them. See, God is, Jesus was going after this thing of love. Because often at times, we only want to love those who love us. It's easy to do that, right? Do you know how to love your enemies and everyone in between? And it starts to grow on you because we can't do this overnight. When I was on my outreach team, it was only two other single guys. We had a team of 20. Most of them were families. And so I had just gotten saved, and, you know, we're we're going on this outreach. And we decided to read The Purpose Driven Life together. How many of you guys have read that book? It's the most Christian book on the planet. (laughs) He's like, so we decided to read The Purpose Driven Life together. But, you know, as ministry goes on and as outreach gets a little more busy, you don't want to stick with it every day because you have to read one chapter a day, you know? And so I fell a few chapters behind. And they come to me one day, they're like, Sonal, hey, can you catch up on your reading so we can discuss these chapters together? And I'm like, uh, man, I'm tired, man, you know? Like, and I'm playing Game Boy and just hanging out. And he's like, please, could you read this book? Please, we want to catch up and read more. And I was like, man, I'm busy right now. Can't you see? I'm playing the Game Boy. And it's actually his Game Boy, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the funny thing. <laughs> And he, like, takes it out of my hand. And like, you don't just snatch something out of someone's hand, you know what I mean? So like, I get pretty angry, you know? I'm like, what are you doing, man? I was like, I was playing that. Grand Theft Auto 3. And he was like, you got to read the book, man. And they kept on pushing me and pushing me. And I said, "Okay, I'll read your effing book. And I took it, threw it across the room, walked out. And then at that moment, I'm just fuming, angry, just so, right? And the, Lord, and, and the Lord reaches me, you know how? So I go and I'm like, okay, I'll read this book. I'll make them feel better. I pick up The Purpose Driven Life, open the page, and it says, chapter 20, How to Restore Broken Fellowship. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? This is the chapter that I left off on? And so I'm like, whatever. I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, God. I'm just getting more and more convicted, more and more convicted, more and more convicted as I read it. And I feel like the Lord say, go back, and you ask for forgiveness. I was like, no way, I'm not going to do that. But I go to them, and I'm like, hey, guys, you know, uh, can, we, can we pray a little bit? And they're like, yeah, "Yeah, okay, yeah, let's pray. And I'm like, Lord, would you please forgive them for taking the Game Boy out of my hand? And God, would you please forgive them for... for constantly pressuring me and they're just like getting more and more agitated you know because I'm like just calling them out in, a, in our prayer. How I many of you have done that? Like you're praying and you're like calling someone out. God would they uh and you're thinking like a conviction of the Holy Spirit is going to fall on them when it doesn't. And then I saw at that moment that it was just getting more and more tense. You know when it gets tense and people can feel it? It was like that right? Like it was getting tense like this girl from our team walked in and she's like uh-uh. She knew something was wrong. And she turned around and left. She's like, I'm not getting involved in the middle of that. And then finally, the Lord humbled me. And he's like, Sono, it's your fault. You know? Like, there's, it might be their fault too, but it's not your place to apologize on their behalf to me. Like, you need to say what you've done wrong. And even if, let's say, even if you only did 10% wrong and they did 90% wrong, there's still 10% that's wrong that you need to ask forgiveness for. So I'm like... Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me for being prideful. Forgive me for cursing at them. Forgive me for getting angry. And as I continued on, it was like, and chose to go under and to humble myself and to prefer them. It was literally like God sucked the bad air out of the room. It was like, and it was gone. To the point where we were asking for forgiveness and we were laughing, just dying laughing afterwards. Because something had changed. Because there was a humility that jarred something loose. Every piece of offense that I had against them, when I had my walls up, when I was too prideful to ask for forgiveness, came crumbling down when I admitted what I had done wrong. And there's going to be times, and I challenge you now, there's going to be times when this happens on outreach. It's inevitable when you put this many people together at this close proximity, right? It's inevitable that it's going to happen. But it's how you choose to resolve it that will make all the difference. And there will be a turning point. If you choose to hold on to your bitterness and anger, it's just going to grow like a cancer and dismantle your team. I'll tell you that right now. Or you can choose to take the high road, the humble road, the road of putting someone else before yourself, the road of saying, okay, I'll move the blanket to the other part of the field that will dismantle what will happen on your team. See, God was going after this thing of love and reconciliation and forgiveness and humility in the in, in the passage. Who was my neighbor? Because He knew if you knew if you could love the very person you hated, that you could cover every single person in between. Because what happens when you humble yourself and ask for forgiveness is that you plant a cross. Exactly where you are. See, it says in 2 Corinthians that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So as you release the very forgiveness that was placed on the cross, like you're releasing the power of God. You're releasing the power of God, of his love, of this transforming love that will take a hold of your team and that will be the greatest asset, the greatest power that you have on your outreach. It changes everything. One day, my friend was at, was at a, uh, he just got here. He had been staffing here for two years. He got radically transformed, came from a similar background as mine. Went back to his home in Atlanta, and all of his friends are unsaved. And they're like, hey, welcome back. We want to take you to a bar. And he's like, okay, let's go. He's like, yeah, I'll just have a beer with them and just hang out. So while, and see, he was kind of like the man in Atlanta in certain circles. And he had gone back. He'd been gone for like two years. So he gets to this bar. He's hanging out with his friends. And then all of a sudden, this guy bumps into him. And he's like, Oh man, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you. And this guy goes, What'd you say to me? And he's like, No, man, I'm just here chilling, you know, with my friends. I just got back from this missions organization. And next thing he you knows, this guy hits him, bam, just punches him in the face. And he's like, And then the whole bar stands up. Because my friend was kind of like the man at one time in Atlanta. The whole bar stands up, and the moment this guy who had hit him, he realized what he had done wrong. He's like, Oops, I, I just touched the wrong person. And so at that moment, my friend who got, unrightfully hit in the face, had to make a decision. He can catch a fence and fight him back. Because all of his friends were ready. They're like, hey, just say the word. We'll hold him outside in the parking lot, and you can punch him as many times as you want in the face until you feel better. And he had a choice. He can either catch the offense. It's a serious offense too, right? He got punched in the face. He could either move away from Christ and think he's entitled to take revenge, entitled to get, grab this offense and, to, make, and t- to have repercussions on this offense that he can, or he could choose to do what Christ would do, which is what? Which is forgive him. And so at that moment, he needs to make a decision. And he goes, no, I don't want, I don't want to hit you back. Can I pray for you? and you know what happens he lays hands on him and he starts praying for him and the whole bar doesn't know what to do to the point where they take off their hat and bow their head in reverence that is the power of god yeah yeah bowed in respect They didn't know what to do. They're, like, praying with them. They're, like, "Uh, okay, I guess this is cool. Some of them are, like, swaying back and forth because they had too much to drink. So they're trying to, like, (laughs) and the whole bar bows their head in reverence. Why? Because he chose not to take the offense, and he chose to go the high road and humble himself. He has every right, according to the world, right? He has every right, according to the world, to get back at this guy. I would say even Christians would argue, yeah, punch him back at least one time. Eye for an eye. Right? But what he chose to do was to plant the cross of Jesus Christ right there at that moment, at that place. By what? By taking the humble road. And by still preferring this guy who had just punched him in the face. To prefer him. See, there's going to be times, like I said on your outreach, when you're going to get offended. And they're probably going to be little offenses. I don't think anyone's going to punch you in the face on your outreach on your team. Maybe you might be tempted to, but I hope it doesn't happen. (laughs) And in that time, you have to have a sober and honest judgment of yourself. You have to have the most sober and honest judgment of yourself, saying, honestly, looking at me like, okay, is my pride welling up, and am I starting to feel offended? If that's the case, God, deal with me right now as we speak help me walk through this help me not hold on to it and become embittered help me not hold on to it and become angry help me not hold on to it and begin to slander and to gossip because that's what happens right when you get offended all of a sudden you start slandering the person on your team and then what happens is that they start it starts to formulate uh, they start to formulate an opinion about the person you're talking about and then it spreads and then what happens is like that now there's two people or two sides right People who agree with this story, that's not objective at all. And people who agree with this story, which is not objective at all. And it turns into this giant, tangled up mess of miscommunication. Because a simple offense grew, and it turned into a cancer. It turned into a cancer that completely dismantled a team. Really, I felt like God wanted me to go after this thing, because it's so important on outreach. We're called to love. Remember John 13, 35? By the way that you love one another, people will know you are my disciples. We are called to love with an extravagant love, one that constantly puts other people in front of us. We continue to be called, be marked by this love. And there's another story, even a greater degree. There was this missionary family in Turkey. They had two young children. They had been waiting years to follow their call for God. To Turkey, And Turkey is an Islamic nation, but it's not so militant, right? And so they start their ministry there. They're working with some underground churches. And what happens is that one of the Islamic militant dudes acts like he's saved. And then he begins to form a relationship with the father of this young family. And as he continues to deceive him, one day he kidnaps him. He kidnaps him. They torture him for days. It's gruesome. They torture him for days, to the point where sooner or later he has to die, and they kill him. This news hits the streets. The wife finds out that they are going to follow the call of God. Two young children gave up everything to do what's right. The father was killed, taken from them. It's not fair, right? So what happens is that the news starts to spread to the point where the media starts to get involved. And they finally locate the woman whose husband was killed. And they find her. They're like, hey, can we, get, can we ask you a question? She's like, yeah. If you can say anything to the killers right now, the ones who made your children fatherless, the ones who made your children fatherless, the ones who killed your husband, to the ones who tortured your husband. He suffered anguish. I mean, he just suffered incredible pain that many, many of us will never even know. What would you say to them right now? She looks dead at the camera. She says, I want to say to the killers that killed my husband, that made my children fatherless, that I forgive you. That I forgive you. Because I know that Christ has first forgiven me. See, what happened is this rocked the nation. And she had missionaries coming to her who had been there for 10 years saying, we've been here for 10 years continuing to plow. But through that one statement, we saw something shake in the country something has changed because she planted the power of the cross, the power of the cross, the selfless love that sacrificed itself for our sin so that because we were forgiven by God, we could then offer the same forgiveness to those around us for big things and small things. See, there'll be times when your team starts to yeah, there'll be sin against one another. And, 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 I mean, I'm not, I'm not condoning I'm saying that it's okay, but it's, it's, uh, there's a good chance that it's going to happen. But actually, God is using that to redeem, to restore, and make even stronger. Because you're planting a cross in your team. And as you forgive one another, it's releasing something in the spirit of God. It's releasing something in the spirit of God. It begins to change everything. These crazy acts of forgiveness, it changes everything changes everything do you remember there's been so many shootings in America there was even a shooting at the YWAM base in Colorado in Arvada two years ago right it's been about two years I think Dan you knew some of them right in that area because he lived in Colorado for a while (coughs) this young man he was grew up in a religious family He, he had gone to YWAM something terrible happened with him and he left and he he just got angry so he went on a hunt to kill Christians He went to a church called uh, New Life, shot up a bunch of people. But the night before, he went to the wildland base, shot up, I think three passed away. God rest their soul. And it was just crazy, like, and after that, um, I think he was shot dead by a security guard. But what was crazy is that even after that, that there was still a time of forgiveness. That they went to the family of... That who had raised him, and they were like, Man, we forgive you and your son for what you guys did. Well, I remember the shooting in the Amish school. This guy was just angry at Christians. He, like, backed his truck into the school or something and just mowed down everyone. Amish people, I mean, they're harmless. They ride buggies on the street, right? Even though I saw two, there were like, I saw one guy in Pennsylvania when I was there, he was buying golf clubs and rollerblades. <laughs> but, anyways. But yeah, these Amish people who are harmless, and they go in and they plow everyone. He kills everyone. And that even after all that had happened, after this great tragedy, the, the Amish people of that community say, hey, right away, the very first day, next day, they're like, hey, we forgive you. And we forgive the man who, did these, who has done these things. It shook the country. Because see, this is, This is everything the world tells you is opposite, right? It's opposite of whatever the world tells you to do. It says you're entitled. You're entitled to your pain. You're entitled to your anger. You're entitled to the offense that is against you. You're entitled to it. That's why Jesus went after that in in Luke 17 as well, because we feel entitled to it. That's why the, the disciples were like, Lord, give us more faith, because we can't do it. But he's like, hey, with the faith of a mustard seed, you can do it. He went after this thing of entitlement because we feel entitled to things that are ours. We feel entitled to our pain, to our anger, to when people have done us wrong, to when they have used our shampoo too many times or when they wore our clothes without asking or when they made a sarcastic comment at me. I feel entitled to getting back at them or when they made a poor leadership decision or when when the students weren't following as well. There's all these expectations that are men, and it's just flooded with disappointments. And then this weird sense of offense and entitlement come. God is wanting to go after that. And so I felt like this is a word, more than anything, a word of protection from the Lord. Because unity is the strongest weapon of warfare that you have. Because why? Because he talked about the power of the cross of Jesus Christ today, right? And how you walk in the authority of Jesus because of the blood of the cross. If you walk in unity, you're walking as the body. You're walking in the power of the cross, completely, in love, in honoring, being like the Trinity, bringing God to this place, watching the commanding, the, the blessing of God commanded on the earth, like it said in Psalm 133. And each of you have a huge responsibility to fight for it. To pray in your quiet place for it. To see when things get out of control. To come and to honor and do it in a loving way. To keep your eyes open for it and to begin to rebuke it when it comes. To begin to talk with gentleness to one another about these things. To continue to move in the opposite spirit rather than slandering. To constantly encourage one another constantly edify and build one another up you have a responsibility to fight for your team why because it's the right thing to do why because that's what christ has called you to do is to fight for your team so that you'll be the biggest blessing not only to them but also to the place that you're going makes a world of difference makes a world of difference and we're all responsible there's a mandate on our lives to fight for this thing. To fight for this thing. So actually, I, I want us to cry out together in our outreach teams. I know you guys have broken into your outreach teams a lot. And I could see, as I was sharing, people kind of looking back and forth at each other. Because there was things that were resonating when we were sharing these things. To cry out. To cry out. To cry out for God. To, to, and to fight for the unity for your team. And to say, God, fill us with your heart so we know how to love. Fill us with your heart so we know how to love. Fill us with your heart that pumps the blood of Christ and that circulates the Spirit of God within us. Help us, Lord, to go after this thing of unity. So if you want to break into your teams, that would be great.